and you turn to it, I'd ask if you would honor the reading of Scripture by standing today. We're going to read these four verses of Scripture together. For here it says in the ninth verse, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. Can we say a good amen? In essence, perhaps almost as if reaching back into the, uh, the Psalms where it simply says, Let God be true, but let every man be a liar. God is true. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. And this is the witness of God that he has testified of his Son. Tenth verse. He that believeth on the Son of God has this witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. How many believe that God validated the ministry of Jesus on multiple levels? Not only his miraculous uh, ministry and the casting out of devils, but on two separate occasions an audible voice was heard. Not just by Jesus and his disciples. It was by Jesus and his disciples the second time upon that Mount of Transfiguration, but the first time at the waters of baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is the record. This is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Twelfth verse. And he that hath the Son hath life. If you don't have the Son today, if you know the Father without, if you say and profess that you know the Father and you do not know him through the person, the revealed person of Jesus Christ, then you do not know the Father. For he that hath the Son has life. He that hath not the Son of God does not have life. Thirteenth verse, these things, last verse, have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. How many believe on that name today? Amen. That name is Jesus. Amen. Amen. That you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. I would like you just to pray. I'm not going to title today's lesson, at least not initially. We're going to, or message. I want you to set your hearts today. I'm going to be very honest with you. It's a difficult course that I'm going to attempt to navigate today, and I need the extreme help of God. I need His grace, and I need His enabling ability. It's beyond myself. It's beyond my educational uh, ability. It is beyond my vocabulary. It's beyond all these things. If God does not help me, then you perhaps can walk out of here confused and dismayed. But if he helps us, then perhaps you'll be spurred to study and perhaps you'll be spurred to, uh, to learn more, to prepare ourselves from some of the impending things that are happening both around us now that would be present impending and things that are yet to come. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. We're honored by your word. We thank you. It will bring clarification to the people here in just a few short moments. I pray that you would help us today in the name of Jesus to understand the direction that I'm going to, to go. Bless, bless these things as difficult as they may be, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much. Listen, I am so appreciative of this opportunity to serve as the pastor of this fellowship. I take it very seriously. I consider it a grave responsibility committed unto me. Hebrews 13 and 17 says that I watch for your soul as one who must give account. As a shepherd, the word pastor in the Greek is also translated shepherd. And it's drawn from that 
metaphor that we uh, shared openly about last Sunday morning and certainly last Wednesday night. Even Jesus himself alluded to his own personhood as the good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. He simply said, I'm not a hireling. Jesus said, a hireling whose sheep are not his own. He flees when he sees the wolf cometh, but the shepherd is willing to give his life for the sheep. And I believe that it's my responsibility as a pastor to teach you and equip you to share with you the things of God, to, to love you and affirm you, but at the same time, as I say often, to reprove and rebuke and exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. It's not always easy to do. It's not always um, pleasant to do, but I believe it is required of a shepherd. Same as it would be of a parent who a parent who would fail to correct their children. I cannot necessarily say that he should he or she should be labeled as an effective parent. And so, as a pastor, I'm drawing some of the things in the direction I'm going to go today to some of the contemporary issues that are circling around us, as I have done in the past. And I made a couple of statements a few weeks ago in one of the more difficult sermons that I made, as I preached in the context, as I felt like I was warning our church family concerning uh, the dangerous direction that I personally believe that we were seeing happen in the culture of America today with the militant homosexual movement that had begun to rise. And I even exhorted you concerning being ever wary of the direction that the Democratic Party had taken because of their support of these things. It was met with much approval by many, but perhaps not by all. But I, you know what? I have to preach my convictions. Whether or not people pat me on the back and affirm me, I have to preach what I see, what I know, and what I believe. So it's never done to offend anybody. It's never done to, uh, to, uh, to isolate you. It's designed to challenge you to believe, I believe in these things. I believe or I wouldn't preach them. Well, I made a statement on that fateful sermon that I believe that there was something that's been flying under the radar many times to us that is of a greater threat. It poses a much greater threat than perhaps many of us are aware of, and it will soon, and it is even now, beginning to surface. And I want to put myself in the same context for just a moment of the Apostle Paul, and that's very difficult to do, but when he called the Ephesian elders in Acts the 20th chapter, as he was being being brought in route uh, eventually to Rome for his preaching of the gospel. But as he uh, called the Ephesian elders to him and he met with them, he reminded them for the two and a half years of his ministry in Ephesus, he said, I warned you, I ceased not to warn you with even with tears of the things that were coming. Because he said these words, he said, after my departure shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And he reminded them that for those two and a half years, part of the responsibility of a spiritual leader is to warn if we feel an inclination and unction of the Holy Spirit of things that are happening around us. Well, this is my role today, and I'm going to take it very seriously. And if you're new to our church family, you know, preaching is varied here at this church. Preaching and teaching is varied. Sometimes it's very evangelistic. Sometimes it uh, has, has a lot of excitement. Sometimes it's very, it's very somber. And today, I, you know, I don't know exactly where we're going to go, but I want, to, I want you to know today that I believe that the greatest threat that is both in the free world, it's both to our Christian heritage, to the nation of America, but it's even beyond the nation of America, is to religious freedom everywhere. And that's the growing threat of militant Islam. Militant Islam that is something that is 1,500 years old, but oftentimes it's been something that you and I as Christian believers have not necessarily taken the time to study or to study to be able to, to actually understand this component just a little bit. Let me give you some numbers for just a moment if I can, because the numbers are staggering. Did you know that Islam, there are 1.8 billion 
members or Muslims in the world today. It is second only to Christianity in the world's religions. Now, Christianity, as we use those numbers, are not simply the Protestant churches that you and I are so familiar with, evangelical churches, but that includes Eastern Orthodox churches, Catholic churches, and the Protestant in order to supersede that number of, of Islam. 1.8 billion. Did you know in the United States of America, the number of mosques has grown, almost doubled in the, in the 10 years of the census from 2000 to 2010. The number of mosques grew from 1,209 by the year, in the year 2000 to 2,106 by the year 2010. And today, just to give you a comparison very quickly, the Assemblies of God has finally crossed approximately 3 million members in the United States, making us the, the nation's 10th largest denomination in the state side. Now, around the world, as we shared with you last week, the Assemblies of God is much, much, much larger. However, put that in comparison that today there are approximately 2.75 million Muslims now in America today. And you and I have to begin to brace ourselves because it's not just things that we're going to be seeing across the screen from across the water, but we have to prepare ourselves both in the right application that we are, our paths are going to cross of men and women that have a different ideology, an entirely different ideology than what you and I possess today. And so we have to be prepared to, to, to respond appropriately. Now, the thing that is most fearful, and this is what I'll be alluding to later, is that of that group of 1.8 billion worldwide, 15% are considered radical fundamentalists, such as you see in Iran and Iraq. And many of you have had your attention glued to the television sets, not only with the conflict of Israel and Palestinians, but also with what's going on in Iraq today. And we'll talk maybe perhaps a little bit more about this. Now, when you think that 15% of the, of the Muslim world is, you think that's a small number, that means 85% are peaceful. But 15% of 1.8 billion people is between 250 and 300 million people, the entirety of the population of the United States, of men that, whose hearts would be set for the destruction not only of America but of the Christian church, not only of the Christian church but every infidel and unbeliever to which we'll learn a little bit more about here in just a moment. So I want you to hear me today. This is a very serious issue and you better prepare your heart and mind because it's coming closer to your doorsteps than what you had ever imagined and you get a girt. This is, the days of the apathetical play church Christianity may be gone because we are surrounded at a vicious time in human history and we have to be prepared to be salt and to be light and yet at the same time not fall prey to the seductive spirits that are around us. I'm a fundamentalist evangelical. I believe in giving my life for the sake of the gospel but I don't want to find myself walking in hatred. I don't want to find myself sowing the very seeds of hate that I am hoping to resist by my word of faith. So I have to guard my heart and guard my mind. Now, I want to challenge you today, and I'm going to give you a little bit of the doctrine and the things that I've gleaned. Now, I know that amongst me today are some highly educated people, and then my, like myself, some very little uh, educated people. But at the same time, it would behoove all of us to be a little bit more diligent and to study a little bit about the history of the Islamic movement. And I'm going to share with you some brief overtones today, just very quickly, just giving you a brief synopsis of it, if I can, for just a moment. Now, in doing so, I will confess to you that my my knowledge is very limited, and I have read and I have studied, but at the same time, I can't go back and undo years of ignorance and make it up in one short week in preparation for the sermon today. But again, I'm going to just give you a brief trail so that you can understand these things perhaps a little bit more clearly today. But it was in 570 AD when the prophet Mohammed, who is the founder of the Islamic movement, was born in 
in the region of Arabia, what we would know today as Saudi Arabia, or in the larger re region just north of the Arabian Peninsula, where he was born. He was born at a time when the world was conflicting between two controlling kingdoms, and one was the Byzantine Christian kingdom to the north, the other one is, uh, uh, I, will, uh, I won't mention it today just real quickly, but, uh, but at the same time, in his particular areas, he came to his young adulthood, he was surrounded by idolatry. Idolatry was rampant in that Arabian region with many as three and four and five hundred separate deities that would often gather in the town of Mecca on one annual occasion. All these uh, deities represented by these singular tribes would come together in one great multiplication and they would there, uh, there was actually in the city of Mecca in the center of the city was a large building that would actually for these few days that they would come together they would allow a spot for every one of their idols to be worshipped in one kind of group celebration of their pagan deities and gods. Well when um, when, when Muhammad was first, uh, you know, when he first got married, he married actually a, a widow woman that was 15 years his senior. He was 25, she was 40, and she was wealthy. Her husband is deceased. She was a wealthy caravan owner. And so it afforded him the opportunity to kind of give himself over to contemplation and meditation, and he chose to do so. Now, oddly enough, in the region in which he lived in Mecca, there was a lot of Jews, as well as what we would call heretical Christians. Heretical Christians taught things that you and I would not find to be true in Scripture based upon folklore. John the Beloved, in the very book that we read from earlier today, warned us of those heretical Christians when he said they went out from us, but they were not of us. And so many doctrines began to emerge in early Christianity as well as in Judaism. Now Judaism, there's a strict uh, orthodox interpretation of the law, but then there's also a lot of folklore as well. But a study of, of the eventual doctrine that would be produced by Muhammad would reveal that he was impacted by some of the heretical teachings of the Christians that were in Mecca in his early days as well as the Jewish folklore. Folklore. And it was at the age of 40, during one of his meditations, some of the people of Mecca would go to the caves surrounding the city and they would meditate. And it was there at the age of 40 that he had what he believed was his first visitation from the angel Gabriel. He professed that the angel Gabriel came to him. His first visitation was met with him actually falling into a trance-like state. It was oftentimes when these things would come to him, when this angel, supposed angel, would come to him, that he would oftentimes fall into a trance-like state. He would... Uh, he would foam at the mouth. His body would go into shivers and quakes. You and I would see that and we would interpret that as, come on, as demonic. See, and the Bible warns us. The Bible warns us of angels that masquerade as demonic angels that masquerade as angels of light. And the Apostle Paul even warned us in the book of Galatians, says, whether we or an angel or any other man comes to you and preach any other gospel unto you, let that person be accursed. But so as he begins to receive these visions, he shares them first with his wife who introduces her, uh, him to his uncle. And his uncle has, at that time is contemplating Christianity and he affirms to Mohammed that these visions are of God. And over the next 23 years, despite the fact that Mohammed is moving from place to place to place, uh, the, 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 he experiences numerous uh, visions and revelations that he is copying and writing or giving, he is reciting to his followers who are writing them down. 
down, and that is the Quran as we would know it today. It's about, two, or it's about three-fourths the size of the New Testament, and I'll talk more about it, but that was his teaching that he supposedly heard from this angel Gabriel that Gabriel has announced that all these pantheon of gods that they're worshiping in Mecca, there's only one God, and that God is Allah. Now, you and I, in our ignorance at times, we have thought that when the, when the uh, Islamic person says Allah God, his Allah God is perhaps not the same God as our Yahweh God of Judean descent, but actually the word Allah in Arabic is, is, is simply is Arabic for God. And so what he actually in his divine revelation is that Elohim, the Jewish name for God, the creator, that was the one true God. Allah, Arabic to him, was the one true God and that they're, they're, all these false gods are exactly that. They're false gods. And so that was, that was really what he began to build his doctrinal belief system around was that there was but one God. Well, you and I would agree with that. There's but one God. There is but one God. And we'll talk more about the distinctions between the, the doctrines of, uh, of Islam and Christianity a little bit today, but probably more on Wednesday from there. And so, but initially... His doctrine that he begins, he hides it amongst his family for three years. And after three years, he goes public with it in Mecca because he thinks that the Jews are going to receive the doctrine. He thinks the Christians are going to receive the doctrine. He thinks that even the common people, but the, they all begin to reject this doctrine as heresy and say, this is not of God. And so he's met with, you know, he's kind of shunned. And, and eventually he was driven from Mecca. And that's a fateful day that the, the Islamic uh, people still celebrate today, the day that Muhammad was driven from Mecca. And so, but when he was driven from Mecca, he eventually goes to a city called Medina, and there he's gained a little bit more success in sharing his doctrine. 150 followers follow him to, from Mecca to Medina. It's a 298-mile journey made by foot or by a caravan. And while there, now this is where something begins to shift, and I'm, I know I'm just sharing a lot of general information to give you just a little picture into the beginning stages of Islam in the life of Mohammed. While there, he doesn't have necessarily opportunity opportunity for uh, to get established in any type of business so he sets his heart to begin to raid the caravans that are bringing their merchandise into the city of Medina and during this time period the next few years of, of Muhammad's life he authorizes the the raiding of 47 ca uh, caravans that are traveling with their goods many times when they would capture these caravans they would not only take their resources but they would kill their men and oftentimes women and children it was very bloody it was very violent it was was authorized by Muhammad himself, and many times these deaths happened right in front of him. But oddly enough, his movement began to grow, and supporters began to come to him, and he eventually gained the strength to actually take both Medina and Mecca. He actually was able to return back to Mecca several years later with an army, and the inhabitants of Mecca actually just laid down their arms and let him, allowed him to come into the city. And the first thing that he did was he destroyed that, that house that was in the center of town where all the gods and deities were place, he destroyed it in simply declaring that there was only one God and Allah was his name. Now, he died at the age of 63 years of age and upon his death, there was a succession of caliphs that began to take his message and they began to expound it and it began to grow and it grew mightily and it grew primarily through jihad. Now, it, it, grew, through, it grew through evangelism, but it also grew through jihad, to which we'll talk about in just a little while. And it spread rapidly over the area and it even made its way into Europe, going as far as France before it was finally turned back. And you'll have to study... 
the history of it to, in order to just see how, how that has had surges. Islam has had surges. It had surges where it was a large entity that was affecting the entire region. It had surges where it was kind of, it was, it was losing its power. Well, let me tell you, a surge is happening again. There's a massive surge happening again, and you have to understand the root of it, and you have to understand its cause and its purpose, or if not, you're going to fall prey to the things that are happening around us. So let's go just a little bit for just a few moments. Islam, let me just tell you, while even in his absence, for these next few hundred years, as it grows, it's, being, it's, it's growing again by their way of teaching, but it's also the violent jihad. This is one thing that was kind of new to me in my study, is that Islam was extremely active in the slave trade. Did you know that they turned hundreds of thousands of Christians and Jewish men and women into slaves, and children, men, women, and children into slaves? Did you know that still happens today? That slavery has almost been stamped out across the world, except for within Islam. That Islam still practices it today. Did you know Islam again spread as far as Asia and Europe, but was eventually was turned back. Of course, it's there now, but, but, but let's just draw our attention for just a moment. Let's look at the Quran. Let me just take for a moment. That was a brief history of his life, just very quickly. He died at 62 years of age, and the succession was passed to the caliphs. But let's go for just a moment into the Quran. And I'll just give you a few exhortations. Again, it's three-fourths the size of the New Testament. It is declared by the angel Gabriel that it is the Word of God, that it is the authoritative Word of God. Now, while Muslims believe in other portions that they consider to be holy books, they believe or they supposedly believe in the Torah, they supposedly believe in the Psalms of David, they supposedly believe in the Gospels as holy books, but the Quran is the Word of God given to the prophet Muhammad and recited to his followers and captured by pen. But a close examination of the actual text will reveal it as a fragmented, disoriented teaching with every fifth or sixth verse lacking any rational understanding or thought whatsoever that you can't even understand it or comprehend it. And, and uh, the, some of the additional teachings that came along after the Quran was the Hadith. And the Hadith is the, was the explanation supposedly that Muhammad gave to some of the teachings that were contained in the Quran. It was discovered that many of the verses that are in the Quran were taken from Jewish and heretical Christian teachings that are actually there simply false, but he extracted them stories, bits and pieces and imagery of Jewish folklore and Christian her heretical teachings have found themselves and found their live stream in the Quran. Now I want you to hear this very quickly. Mohammed was married first to his, his first wife for 25 years, but it, he began to practice the, uh, the practice of polygamy. He married 15 additional wives, one of which was six years old when he married her. But he did not consummate the marriage. He waited until she was the ripe old age of nine years of age to consummate his marriage. And it is recorded in the Hadith. This is not recorded in external writings. This is recorded in their own writings. Muhammad often boasted of having sex with all 16 of his wives in a single night, declaring Allah had given him the strength of 40 men. In the Quran, he encourages and allows men to marry up to four women. But many exceed this number because can, they say, well, I will only be married to four at a time. And when I get tired of the four at a time, I will divorce them. Many of the countries under the Sharia law allow Muslim men to divorce their women by simply saying, I divorce you three times consecutively in a row, and it breaks the marriage covenant. And then they can go to someone else. While only four wives, a man could have an innumerable host of concubines, especially slave girls. Did you know women have been and still are viciously mistreated in Islam? Amen. 
Are y'all with me today, church family? I, 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 listen, this is not in a corner any longer. This is not just across the seas. This is not something that we occasionally hear about. This is not some ancient... These things are happening to this very day. Often women are, were taken during that day, but still are in certain parts of Africa. Often the, the, the women were taken as either slaves or concubine members as a result of Islamic jihad. Mohammed married one Jewish woman. Listen to this. He married one Jewish woman, and listen when he married her. Remember when I told you just a few moments ago, and I know that I'm just giving you a brief synopsis of the life of Mohammed for just a moment. On one of those skirmishes or battles, when they took one particular city, they gave the Jewish people inside the city the, 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 the opportunity to convert to Islam. Well, the Orthodox Jew would refuse. So 600 Jewish men were brought outside the city, and they were told to dig a mass grave. So they dug their own mass graves, and when they a mass grave, they dug one mass grave, and then the Muhammad's Islamic horde systematically beheaded every single one of them and buried them in front of their wives and children. Muhammad searched through that group of 600 and found one Jewish woman that he liked and chose to keep her for his wife. And he consummated, he forced himself upon her that very night, the day that she had saw her husband's head taken off of his shoulders in front of her very eyes. Thus the beginning of Islam. According to the Quran, listen to this, Muhammad Again, or to the Hadith, Muhammad actually authorized gang rape of captured slave women. According to the Quran, a Muslim husband can beat his wife into submission. Muslim women have little representation in court. Her testimony is measured out only to half of a man's testimony. Here's Muhammad's his own words. He described women as ignorant, deficient in intelligence, and in religion. And he had a supposed vision of hell. And in his supposed vision of hell, Mohammed claimed that most of the sufferers in hell were women. This is the real deal, church family. This is not the peaceful religion that people want us to, to, to perceive that it is. It is rooted in hatred and violence, and you need to be aware of it because it's not just on foreign soils anymore. While Muslims practice five pillars of faith, Here's their five pillars that are, supposed, that are supposedly peaceful. Number one is their open confession of faith. I'll elaborate more upon this on Wednesday night. Time will not afford me to do so today. Number two, they practice prayer towards Mecca five times a day. It used to be towards Jerusalem, but when the Jews in Mecca did not uh, accept his doctrine, then, they, then he turned from praying towards Jerusalem and began to turn towards Mecca. They keep the fast of the month Ramadan. They give of alms. They're expected to give 2.5% of their income sporadically at their choice to people that are to poor people throughout the course of the year. And they encourage every person to make a pilgrimage to Mecca. And so those are the five pillars of faith that are supposedly peaceful. But it is the sixth pillar that is most frightening, and that is jihad. Jihad is the practice of warfare in the name of Allah. It is authorized and empowered by the Quran that if you are a fundamentalist, if you interpret the Quran to be the authoritative word of God and you evangelize someone, you evangelize someone with the faith that you believe in and that you're trusting in and that person rejects it, you are empowered by the Quran to kill that person as either an unbeliever or an infidel. Targeted certainly throughout these teachings are both Jews and Christians. So they're empowered to kill the unbeliever uh, 
and the infidel by the, by the sword. Radical fundamentalists will kill both unbelievers and infidels, but they will also kill who they believe to be apostate Muslims. Our minds are filled with images recently of the war in Iraq when we're seeing the, 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 uh, the, the Shiites that are gunning down their Sunni brothers, gunning down young men, 20 and 30 years of age, begging, begging for them not to kill them. And they gun them down because they consider them to be apostate Muslims because they have shown some allegiance to the, to the West. If you take the time, if you take the time to study Islam, it has and always will be a religion of violence, and bloodshed. The Quran teaches concerning Jesus Christ. Can I take a moment? You know why we, uh, we specifically had you sing the song today. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. Did you know the Quran teaches about Jesus? Let me take a moment to tell you what the Quran teaches. The Quran teaches that Jesus was a prophet and he was the forerunner to Muhammad, the way that John the Baptist was the forerunner to Jesus, the Quran teaches that Jesus was the forerunner to Muhammad. He's a great prophet. He's numbered amongst. They also believe in Adam. They believe in Noah. They believe in Abraham. They believe in Moses. And they believe in Jesus as prophets. And Jesus is the second highest prophet only behind Muhammad. He was and he is a great prophet. Yet they declare if, uh, emphatically in the, in, in the Quran that he is not the son of God. For God is not triune in nature in the mind of the Muslim. They believe that Jesus Christ was not crucified. They believe that he had the appearance of crucifixion. That he, God or Allah allowed him to have the appearance that he was crucified, but God would never let such a holy prophet die that way. So someone died in his stead. Many Muslims believe that Judas Iscariot took the place of Jesus Christ and died on the cross. He, uh, Muslims believe that Jesus ascended up into heaven was not allowed to die, and that he will return as Messiah. He will return. They do define him as the Messiah. And when he returns, he will kill all the Jews... He will kill all the Christians. He will kill all the pigs, the actual pigs, P-I-G-S, like the ones I'm going to buy and raise on my farm soon because they don't like pork. And he will destroy all crosses. He will get married. He will live 40 years, and he will be buried in Medina beside Muhammad where he will await the resurrection. Consistently throughout the Quran. Mohammed declares, I'm paraphrasing, I'm paraphrasing, but it's consistently on multiple occasions, it says, Allah has no son. Did you know that the center of the most world's, perhaps for the world's most recognizable edifice is the Golden Dome, the mosque in Jerusalem that sits upon, that sits upon what was the former temple mound of the Jewish Believers, y'all know that, right? I mean, a lot of people, if you haven't taken the time, we see that, we know it's in Israel, we think that it's associated with the Jews, but it's not. It's, the, it's a mosque, and it was built in the 600s. Did you know, inscribed on the top of it, inscribed on the top of it are words about that Allah is great, and Allah is good, Muhammad is his prophet, I'm paraphrasing, and God has no son. God has no son. Many of you are waiting for the Antichrist to appear. Perhaps the Antichrist and the spirit of Antichrist is already seated on the temple in Jerusalem. Simply saying, God has no son. 
militant Islam grows. Let me tell you where it's growing within. It grows within the ranks of peaceful Islam. Peaceful Islam gives birth to militant Islam. Listen to what many of the Christian reformers of hundreds of years ago considered Islam, for they considered them to be the spirit of Antichrist. Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant movement, when he nailed his 95 Thesis to the door in the church of Wittenberg, Germany, declaring that the just shall live by faith, would later write, there were two regimes, that of the Pope of his era and that of the Turkish Islamic who are Antichrist. John Calvin maintained Mohammed was one of the two horns of Antichrist. Jonathan Edwards, who would give us the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God, was the first president of Princeton Bible College, would write these words. There are two great works of the devil which he wrought against the kingdom of Christ and his, it is number one, his anti-Christian papacy and it is the Mohammedan kingdoms. And did you know that the prophet Daniel prophesied of, I believe, the spirit, that that spirit would wear out the saints of the Most High God? So since its evil conception, Islam has waged a violent jihad on the inhabitants of all this earth, especially Jews and Christians. Islam grows through both radical evangelism and jihad. It is conversion by conquest. This powerful movement is surging again, and you and I have the biblical responsibility to resist that spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. Our warfare is not with flesh and blood. We do not have animosity or hatred in our hearts towards the Muslim. But we bind unclear spirits and demonic spirits and demonic ideologies. And I'm not holding hands with the Muslim and professing we are all one brotherhood for we are not. There is a distinct difference. Because I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ. And I believe in the Holy Spirit. And I hope that you do as well. As a pastor, in my heart of hearts, I see, I see the movement, the, the activity of these things beginning to surge, not only around the world, but also in our own nation, America. And we must be rooted and grounded in what we believe. I believe that God had a son. I believe he was begotten of the Father. He, dwelt, he, he, he existed eternally in the heart of the Father as his Son. But when God created the spoken word and gave life to the virginal womb of Mary, there was the conception of life. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The law was given by Moses, but Jesus Christ brought us grace and truth. We are begotten of the Father because we today believe in Jesus. Jesus Christ, his life, his atoning miracles, his death on the cross. I don't believe that anybody substituted in his place. I believe Jesus died and substituted in my place. I deserve to die on that cross. So did Mohammed and so did you. But God sent his own son to die on that cross so that you and I would have life and life more abundantly. Yes, we believe in the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. We believe in his death. It was violent. It was brutal. Yes, he was a prophet. Yes, he was a great prophet but he was also the prophesied Lamb of God slain from the beginning of the world. And thank God, yes, he is coming again. He's coming with the angels in glory where he will rule the nations with a rod of iron as the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Every name, every knee is going to bow before him. Every tongue's going to confess. And you and I, one day with our eyes, we will see Mohammed bow his knee at the feet of Jesus Christ and declare that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. I believe God has a son, the only begotten of the Father, and his name is Jesus. 1 John 5:11 says, And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. 
If you have the Son, you have life. And if you have not the Son of God, you don't have life. You can look religious, sound religious. You can be cloaked with Islam. You can be cloaked with, Buddha, Buddha, uh, with Buddhism. You can be cloaked with just what I call good old boy ideology. And you can come and sit in the church. You can hear preaching. But if you don't have the Son, you don't have life. Let me give you one final thing in closing here today. I'm just hopefully spurring a thought within your mind to study. I feel this in my heart that it's my responsibility that we must embrace the thought process of teaching and standing against an evil spirit. I think we have to be prepared. Your day may come, the day may come when you have to, when your, when your life is, is uh, your path takes you in the path of Muslims. And if it does so, you need to walk in grace. You need to have the love of God in your heart. We don't fight with the sword of jihad. We fight with the sword of the spirit. We cannot be what they are. Come on, somebody. We have to guard ourselves. Our fundamentalism, if we're not careful, can make us one of them. And we have to be very careful. Jesus died for the Muslim as he died for you and I. He did. They're bound by an evil spirit, the spirit of Antichrist. And it takes the truth to set men free. A particular book, Shane, I've been reading a lot of books, and Shane loaned me one that was in his library that someone gave to him, and I found it, oddly enough, Shane, the most uh, helpful uh, in, my, in my studies. And I'd like to just read a closing page out of this book. It's called Slavery, Terrorism, and Islam. It's the historical roots and the contemporary thread. It's not written here in the soils of America. It's written by Dr. Peter Hammond. Was, he, he, he lived and moved in South Africa, and he ministered all across the African continent, confronting Islam at the very core, having many debates with uh, Muslims throughout his, uh, his ministry. Many times he endured, while in Sudan, the Sudanese uh, army would fire, hel- uh, through their helicopters, would fire rockets at him while he would preach, and God would protect him. So he's given us this book, and I, I Unfortunately, I'll have to borrow my infamous glasses to be able to share with you here today these final words today. But listen very carefully. I felt like this was the most compelling argument for us to conclude with today. And that is the comparison of the Bible with the Quran. Just listen very carefully. The Bible is 66 books written by 40 different prophets and apostles in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek on three continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe, over a 1,500-year period. The Quran is one book written by one author in one language in one geographic area over 23 years. Even the Quran acknowledges that Jesus Christ was miraculously born of a virgin, was holy and faultless, performed miracles, healed the sick, and he raised the dead. Muhammad, however, was a trader who transported and sold slaves. He was also a slave owner. This we learn from the Muslims' own holy writings, the Hadith. One of Mohammed's 14 wives, Aisha, was only six years old when he married her and nine when he consummated the marriage. According to the laws of most countries in the world, that constitutes child abuse. Mohammed attacked caravans for loot and had over 600 Jewish men in Medina dig their own mass grave before having them all slaughtered for refusing to accept him as the prophet. Their wives and children were then sold as slaves. All of these facts are recorded in the Hadith. The authenticity of the Bible as God's revealed word is attested to by many witnesses, by miracles, such as the parting of the Red Sea, the fire that came down on Mount Carmel, our Lord feeding thousands with a handful of food, walking on the water, calming the storm, raising Lazarus from the grave, and countless other events. The Bible contains hundreds of detailed prophecies. Our Lord Jesus Christ himself fulfilled three 
1,500 Old Testament prophecies in his life on the earth. The Messiah was to be born, born of a virgin. He was born in Bethlehem. He was a descendant of David. 483 years after the decree to build Jerusalem, he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. His hands and his feet would be pierced. He would be crucified. They would, ro- they would gamble for his robe. He would be buried with the rich, yet he would rise from the dead, according to Psalm 16 and 10. And he would ascend into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father, waiting the enemies to be made his footstool. Unlike the Quran, the Bible is convincingly attested to by countless miracles and detailed prophecies. Listen very carefully as I close today. There is no provision for forgiveness in the Quran. There is no atonement for sins. However, Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the blood of Jesus Christ, you and I have a full atonement for sin. Jesus healed the sick. Muhammad healed no one. Jesus could make the blind see. Muhammad could only make the seeing blind. Jesus made the crippled walk. Muhammad could make the walking crippled. Jesus could take a dead man and make him alive. Muhammad could take a live man and make him dead. Jesus multiplied food to feed thousands. Muhammad could divide the loot amongst his followers. Jesus could walk on the water. Muhammad could ride a camel. If you visit Medina, you can see the tomb where Muhammad is buried. But if you visit Jerusalem, you will find an empty tomb. The Lord Jesus Christ has risen. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by him. Islam is a religion of hatred and slavery based upon a lie. Christianity is a relationship of love based upon the Word of God, based upon the truth, a relationship of love with the Father. In the Quran, we have one book, one author, one language, one country, over 23 years, no prophecies, no miracles, a grave in Medina, no atonement, hatred for enemies, and slavery. In the Bible, we have 66 books, 40 writers, three languages, three continents, over 1,500 years. We have prophecies, miracles, an empty tomb in Jerusalem, full atonement of sin, love for our enemies, and liberty, for he that the Son has set free is free indeed. Glory to God. Won't you stand up today? They'll join me on the platform. We're going to close very quickly today. I'm going to close by looking back to the promise in 1 John. As a pastor, I'm challenging you. Educate yourself. Hear me today. I know I cannot. My education is too limited to give you the adequate information that you need in a 40-minute sermon on a Sunday morning. You're going to have to educate yourself. This is the real deal, church family. This is the real deal. It's only beginning. History has proven that Islam will surge and then it will... It will kind of draw back and it will surge. It's surging. It is surging today. The United States of America was caught off guard on September 11, 2001 when 19, 19 sold out fundamental Islamic men hijacked aircraft and flew them into the World Trade Centers and the Pentagon killing over 3,000 Americans. But you know, as, as great of the image that we have in our mind, all of us can close our eyes and we can see the picture in our minds of, those, of, the, of the aircraft as they fly into the World Trade Centers. Let me tell you, that 3,000 was just a drop in the bucket of the blood that's been shed. Now, I know this. I know that a lot of wrong has been done in the name of Christ. I know that. There have been a lot of people that have masqueraded and hid behind a cross and, and done a lot of things. But when they do that, let me say that, when they do that, they're not true to the book. Come on, he said, love your enemies. Bless those that persecute you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. If they smite you on one cheek, give them the other cheek. Come on, that's what he taught. But Muhammad taught 
that you have the authority in the Quran to kill the infidel and the unbeliever. They are distinctly different. It is not a peaceful religion. There are peaceful people in it. There are. But the religion at its core, at its core, is not peaceful. And we have to oppose it. In my personal opinion, it is the spirit of Antichrist. Many of you are watching the Left Behind series and you're waiting for some magical person to be the Antichrist. Perhaps that will happen one day. But the spirit of Antichrist is alive and well on planet Earth right now. And he is seated on a throne in Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, and he emphatically declares, Allah is God, Muhammad is his prophet, and God has no son. It's here today. It's not something that's in the future. It's here today. You and I have to be able to resist that spirit and evangelize the known world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I started out by taking you to the First John's epistle. First John shared with us and said these words, that if you have the son, you have life. And if you don't have the son, isn't that right, Daryl? You don't have life. You know, that's for you. That's for, that's for every person here. That, that's irregardless of whether we were born in the northern part of the Sinai Peninsula or whether we were born right here in the United States of America. It's not enough just to be born in what was previously a supposed Christian nation. You have to have faith, and you have to have faith in Christ. Jesus said these words. I don't make these things up. Read it. It's in the book. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. The Bible says in the book of Revelation, Jesus said, behold, I'll stand at the door and knock. If you will open your heart unto me, if you'll open your heart unto me, he said, I and my Father will come in unto you and we will sup with you. I believe that by faith, by faith, you can be born again. You can be born into the kingdom of God. Just going to church is not sufficient. He didn't say if you go to church, you then he said if you have the Son, the only way to possess the Son is by faith, trusting in Him and asking Him to come into your heart. I tell you, Christianity is a living faith. He sends His Spirit into your heart. He sends His Spirit into your heart. And you're being born again. You're caused to be born again. So as our heads bow and our eyes closed, we're going to offer a simple prayer here today. It's a prayer for those that may be here that say, Pastor, I need the Son. I need the Son of God. I need Him in my heart and my life. I want...